Hello, my name is David Turner and this is episode 12 of the Lunar Poetry Podcast. And today I'm in Hackney in East London and I'm joined by Paul Varjak and James Harris. Hello, both of you. Hello. Hello, then. Hello, hello. Um, we'll start, as always, with my guests giving an introduction to themselves and we'll begin with James. Hello, uh, my name is James. I'm 33 years old and I'm a writer and comedian from Nottingham. Thank you very much. And Paula. Uh, my name is Paul Varshak and I am a, what am I calling myself today? I am a theatre and uh, video artist um, and I'm from a lot of places but I've spent most of my life now in London. Hmm. And you both have known each other for a little while now? Yeah, so, we have. Yeah, James, yeah. James keeps following me from different houses. It's, tr- it's true, it's true. <laughs> you have to explain that so it doesn't sound totally <laughs> weird and creepy. Yeah, it's quite quite interesting what people would imagine just from that statement. Uh, uh, yeah, I occasionally pop up in Paula's residence like some obscure fungus. It's uh, uh, it started in Berlin, uh, and uh, Paula, I, I was sans domicile fixe without without a fixed address, and Paula was um, good enough to lend me her keys for the weekend. When you're away a bit longer, and then I, um, I was waiting for an apartment to become free so I stayed in Paula's flat for for a little while while that happened and then uh, a, a while later uh, Paula uh, said that she was going to be hiring out a spare bedroom here and that was uh, over two years ago now yeah. So, yeah. But I came yeah. back to London first. To that's to true. That's true. <laughs> you did actually follow me from Berlin. <laughs> that's true, yeah. 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 I'm glad you did though. Yeah, it's been really good. <laughs> this episode is going to focus on the idea of peer critiquing or seeking advice from friends or fellow artists in order to v- develop projects. So I met uh, Paula in the summer when I recorded a series of short extracts from Edinburgh shows and Paula came and very kindly did 10 minutes from your show, what was it called again? How I Became Myself by Becoming Someone Else. Yeah, and I, I was going to say typically, yeah, typically gave uh, my opinion on everything and was invited to this uh, group that Paula runs called Invite Only, which is meets up every month um, and allows people to pitch ideas and get feedback, but we're going to talk about that in a moment. But first we'll take a reading from Paula, which uh, I believe you first shared at one of these groups. Yes. We're going to have some assistance from James, as if there's two lines that don't belong to me. Please provide a brief summary of your recent relevant artistic work experience and achievements. I am an artist. I make art that is particularly artistic, with a focus on people are people, but sometimes are not. I trained in an art school, and then at another art school, where I attained a qualification in making art. Since then, I have done this, and 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 now I am so in demand that I never stop. There's never a moment when I'm not either making art or being commissioned and programmed to make more art. I, I am like an art robot who makes unique work that is accessible. My work is so accessible. People of every age and race and religion and color and sexuality and ability all see themselves in my work. My practice is practical. 
classical, contemporary, postmodern, current, and now. I am so busy. I write and devise and design and film and facilitate and curate and produce and perform and promote. I am so busy that I can barely manage my inbox. And because I'm so busy and hard to get hold of, programmers have to call me in the middle of the night just to book me years in advance because their program depends on it. I am so busy. And now I need time. I imagine money like, like someone I have this on-again, off-again relationship with. You know, sexy but toxic. I try again and again to make it work, long-term, but I can't see us settling down even though they're always on my mind. I know that if I see them, I won't be able to think straight. And before I know it, we'll have stayed out all night, it'll be morning, they'll be gone, and I'll have no idea where they went or if I'm ever going to see them again. I can't work them out. And as much as I try to manage them, they're always the one in control. What is your proposed activity and what do you want to achieve by doing it? I want to research and develop the, the research and development of a piece that explores how we explore, investigating and interrogating, reflecting on reflections while, while raising new questions about questions. This piece will be especially targeted at those society fails to target, including the excluded, while simultaneously being relevant and engaging for all. This piece will also subconsciously explore diversity, as I am a queer woman of color. I want to pay myself an amount decided by the letters I, T, and C every week for four weeks so I can stop, research, reflect, and catch up on the new season of How to Get Away with Murder on Netflix. Several organizations have expressed an interest in expressing an interest. Thank you very much. I really like that one. Um, yeah, so like I said, we're going to start by talking about the group that you run, Invite Only. Um, we should start with like the nuts and bolts of it and what the structure is and how often it runs. So if you, what if you can start with. So uh, Invite Only is a group that I've been running for just over a year now. And uh, I set it up because I set it up because what I wanted was a group of artists of different disciplines who could give feedback to each other around work that they were currently developing. And I started it, I started it primarily because I'd been living in Berlin for four years, I moved back to London, and I felt like there wasn't really anywhere in the city that, that felt safe to try things out and kind of to fuck up. Um, I did find that there was a really healthy workshop scene for performers, primarily in live art, where there was some kind of like uh, supportive feedback, but then that was always built around exercises that a facilitator wanted to look at from practice. So I wanted to kind of take that element of that and often the people I met in those spaces and create another space where um, rather than it being ex exercise driven, it was just about people in a room had stuff that they were working on. And it was called Invite Only because I also felt that while Scratch format is, is quite useful and quite helpful, um, what I wanted was a space where the feedback wasn't coming from just random people in an audience, but it was actually very curated. So everyone in the group is someone that I've met whose work I'm familiar with, and often they've come to the group because of a combination of being interested in what they're doing with their practice, but also because I'm interested in the way that they give feedback. So um, how do the 
the nights or the evening groups work in terms of structure? Um, so the idea is that uh, we meet for two hours. Um, we last year we were meeting in, in the evenings once a month, usually the first Monday or Tuesday of the month from 7.30 to 9.30. Um, we've recently changed that because some people in the group are better for afternoons and some people better in the evenings. So now we alternate. But the idea is that there are uh, five slots. Um, the first five people who sign up for those slots get them. It's time to pitch an idea, um, to perform something, to play or present a bit of something for 10 minutes. And then you have 10 minutes from the group uh, wherein to give feedback. The reason it's two hours and the reason it's that many slots is from the first few sessions, we kind of found that two hours and five people, 20 minutes each, was sort of around the time that people were still engaged and because it's quite exhausting actually giving feedback and going into different pieces. Um, yeah, so that's that's what it is. So it's like five slots, 10 minutes to present, 10 minutes of feedback each. And I'm pretty fascistic about, about the time slot because it's really important for me that, for example, people earlier on don't end up getting more time, the people at the end don't end up getting less time. Often people have to worry about getting across town to go home. So there's always kind of a tension at the end about overrunning because people get home. So I really want to make sure everyone has exactly their, yeah. their slot. And James, you're quite a regular attendee of these groups as well. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have too much excuse because it's normally happening in my living room. <laughs> uh, so missing it would be fairly bad form. But uh, yeah, I've, I've been to, I would say, I think all of them in some, in some capacity mm. or other. I think um, missed one. I think I missed one, and there was one where I came very, very late. So, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I've, I've used, I've, gi I've given a lot of feedback, but I've also used it to show things which I'm working on. And at the last uh, group, Paul, you talked about the importance of continuity within the group, and maybe you could both uh, talk a bit about what, how important continuity is as someone that runs an event and someone that attends an event. Oh, I'm really curious what James is going to say. Uh, okay, so... I think the group has been really successful in that it's it's still running after a year. Um, I'm regularly getting feedback saying it's something that's been really important and useful. It's made new links between between artists uh, who don't know each other because that was a key thing for me as well. It's like I wanted a group of people who, for the most part, didn't know each other outside of the group because I thought that was important. But in terms of continuity, I suppose what I initially wanted was a space where people were not just coming because they had something that they wanted to present, but they were coming because they were actively interested in uh, supporting other artists through giving them feedback. And what I found is within the group, there's about 35 people, I think on the list, there's maybe like a, a critical mass of, I'd say six, of which I think now you and James are, are within, who will have a pretty you know, good repeat rate of coming back. But for the most part, I would say the majority of people in the group for work commitments and life commitments and whatever tend to kind of come because they have something that they're working on and then don't don't come again, which is completely understandable. But one of the things that I want to kind of push this year is to really encourage more of a continuity so that people people are coming regardless of whether they're presenting something or not. Because I think, I just feel like it's better for the sake of the feedback um, if, after, if there's a sense of like what the development of a project is. And also I'm thinking that in some cases people are gonna dip into the group with different stages of a work and it it's just better if they don't have to explain what the work is every single time, for mm. example. Over to James. 
Um, well, I would say, uh, speaking in my specific case, uh, going back a lot and having a continuity of people is really good for a comedian because uh, if I want to take material in an interesting direction, it might not necessarily be safe material. It might be material which is talking about something really difficult or I might just be doing something which is outside of my comfort zone. For example, I did like a character at one of the uh, invite only and it was a really, really good place to start something like that because because of the safeness of the of the atmosphere. Um, so I think having people come repeatedly is really good because you create an atmosphere where people can try out without any fear that you're going to be criticised uh, in a way which isn't about making the thing better. Uh, criticism in the in the sort of way an audience can give you, which is like stop doing this thing. But that's not necessarily always right because if we listen to audiences when they tell us that every time a lot of the most interesting stuff wouldn't actually get developed, particularly <clears throat> in comedy where when comedians go and talk about really dangerous material, uh, I think one of the reasons they're rewarded by an audience is because the risk of them failing is also quite great when they take that subject. And so I think a group like Invite Only and the idea of like getting to know a group of people who know that you're trying stuff out is, is really it's, important. There's a big element of trust in it, isn't there? Because like you, you're, bringing, yeah. you're bringing work, presumably, that you would never show to an audience. Exactly. Because, and you know you can present it without being destroyed or laughed mm. at for the wrong reasons off stage. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that was the one thing that I was thinking about in terms of continuity, that the reason I like coming fit as regularly as possible is because then you you know who you trust the most and and then very rarely the people that agree with you are they you know it's not people mm. it's not that you're in a room with everyone telling you you're great mm. and it's nice to build up a rapport with people um and to know whose opinions you appreciate the most and who you know will cut through uh whatever you feel is unnecessary and get to the point yeah because you're right there is that it's that's true there's something about and i mean this is why i think Finding peers whose whose feedback you respect is is so valuable because it's about understanding. Oh, um, James' bias is maybe a little bit more towards this, or you know. So you kind of go like, ah, okay, I, I can I can contextualize what the response is to what I know about them. But I think the advantage of the group, as opposed to people in the group just going to their friends, is I brought together people who, for the most part, have met through the group so from the outset they're able to kind of have like this candid response of talking to someone that you don't know really well not worrying too much about how it's going to affect your relationship um but then bringing that bringing that forward and um how important to your own writing is this kind of sharing with uh, peers and contemporaries it's really great for comedy to have a stage which is before getting on stage uh, although i think any any arrangement where people are watching your stuff. Uh, I have to say, I think probably because a comedian is looking for something so specific, like a laugh is a laugh. So if something isn't getting any laughter, even there's, you know, with eight or 10 people in the room, it's still a pretty good indicator. But I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, for me, it's, it's really, really valuable. Um, I think for me, it depends where yeah. I am in with the state and the stage that I'm at with the work. Like, the, the show that I'm making right now, Show Me the Money, uh, I'm working with a dramaturg, which is so that's already a very collaborative relationship. Um, 
my dramaturg Martin Banks, and he's a he's my best friend, and we've been working together for a long period of time. So I think within the context of where we are with Show Me the Money, uh, I I'm not interested in taking that that piece where it is now into the group because I've already kind of got this ongoing dialogue with one collaborator, and I think I just get super confused to kind of throw it out to the group. But having it as a space to talk to at the very beginning of an idea, at the kind of literally like, I don't even know what this idea is. I'm going to mumble out this half sentence. It's super helpful. I think I've also started to use the group much more as a kind of uh, creative, it's like support group therapy for creatives kind of thing, which is super useful because everyone is working in different disciplines and almost the majority of us are freelancers. So there's all kinds of questions that come out around negotiation and representation and, and stuff. So that's, that's mega useful. Yeah, um, my next question was going to be actually, um, at what stage would you typically uh, share ideas? And you probably, probably just answered that quite well. But James, would you, because you, because like you said, as a comedian, because uh, what you're looking for is a very def definite mm. and specific thing, mm. um, would, is it more useful for you to uh, pitch very, very early ideas and then just move straight into audiences? I could use the group. I could present every time yeah. to the group. If, I mean, it would be useful for me every time because I've always... <laughs> But could, if I had like a regular slot in the group, <laughs> like opening the group this week with yeah. the whatever, because I've always got some ideas. Yeah. Uh, I think the main, the, the kind of main benefit of it is that everyone in the group is so nice and supportive that if you are doing something which is as lonely as comedy, uh, or and I, I don't even mean that in terms of the uh, the social aspect of comedy, I mean just the travelling around London and often playing to very empty places. Uh, just having a group of people who are all kind of warm and nice is is as invaluable as anything, you know. Mm. So I, I, I could, I, you know, it will always be useful at any time to present. So we're going to take another reading now, and uh, it's from James this time. Okay, well, I'm going to read um, from very near the beginning of my novel, Midlands, which I have finished. Um, I'm going to do a Scottish accent for one of the characters, so I'd like to apologise in behalf to the people of Scotland. Um, the, the, this is from about the third uh, page of the book, so it's very near the beginning. Um, I'm quite excited to read this in, in front of Paula because it's set at Berlin Central Bus Station, which is a place I believe we have both frequented in our time. Okay. For the record, Stuart had got there first. It was just before eight. The time of meeting had been discussed through text messages the evening before, and Stuart had arrived slightly early. Waiting, he had sat at a bench inside the waiting area, a small series of brown plastic chairs within the seedy-worn station, unchanged since its construction in the 1960s. He was eating a couple of bread rolls from a brown bakery bag and looking out the window at the bus bay. He looked across the concrete bay with its brutalist architecture, its unsheltered bus stops, and large white and green buses heading to Belarus, to Sofia, to Tallinn. When he looked up, a small man was sitting opposite him. He had a dirty face and greasy hair and a small, absurdly isolated clump and wore a shabby moleskin jacket. In his hand was a small paper tray with a sausage on it. I want a bridgen, the man said. Stuart had half a bread roll left, which he had already partly chewed. But I've already bitten into it, he said. Doesn't matter, said the man. 
Stuart handed him the remainder of the roll. Receiving it, the man bent forward and began using it to mop up the remaining mustard. As he did, he made quiet scoffing noises. Stuart looked away and, rooting deeper in his bag, found and began eating the slightly damaged banana he had brought. The man finished the bread roll and spoke, still looking down. I need a euro! Stuart looked back. I don't have one, he said. The man made an apparently accepting grunt and returned to the tray where he finished his sausage. Stuart watched him, his little face chewing. He noticed the dirt on the man's cracked fingernails. The man finished eating. He sat down the tray and let out a satisfied gas. But I need an euro unbedinked. I absolutely need a euro. Stuart repeated, I don't have one. Why not? Because I don't, it's my choice, said Stuart. There was a slightly longer pause. The man appeared to be giving great thought to Stuart's response as he chewed up the very last of his sausage. Then after a pause he said, Du bist dumm. You're stupid. What? Du, you're stupid. Dumm, dumm gans, silly goose. The man was staring at him, quite cleaning out. Du bist ein Arschloch. You're an arsehole. And then, like some tiny little bird, like the preening display of a hibernating disturb, stuck out his tongue, exposing his throat to emit a little hostile beep of displeasure. <coughs> Stuart sat looking at him. He was smiling already, thinking of telling Dougie about it, about how he had wanted to say, You'll have to try harder, mate, I'm from the Midlands. When, through the window, he saw his friend at the bus bay. Excuse me, he said, standing and leaving the tramp behind. Dougie was waiting at their stop, wind-ruffled, bareheaded, leather jacket, buttoned high. All right, pal. All right, mate, said Stuart. This our bus, eh? They were in front of their ride, a huge single-decker chariot of a striking pale green. I think so. Nice, nice. I'm telling you, man, it was hard to get up this morning when you've got a beautiful lady lying next to you. You know how it is. At the moment, I do. Ah, oh, you dirty dog, you. You'll have to tell me about that later. Should we get on? Looks like he's ready for this. The driver had turned the engine on and his assistant was gesturing to people around the bus to begin loading their suitcases. Dougie and Stuart had just tote bags with them, so they joined the queue at the bus's front entrance. As they waited, Stuart told him about the tramp. Really? said Dougie, laughing. You've got a bit there, man. Stuart said, yeah, I, I wanted to say to him, you know, I'm from the Midlands, right? He repeated the man's little nah! sound a few times, trying to get it right, knowing that only if he reproduced it exactly as it occurred would it be funny. They were now at the front of the queue, and Stuart handed over a printout of their tickets. The driver, in white shirt and enormous sand-rimmed glasses, authorised their entrance with a simple performative, yeah. Dougie went first, ascending the step into the large plus bush bus. There were few people around and they found two free spaces two-thirds of the way down, with Dougie, after they got comf comfy, saying, This is nice, Manny. How much were the tickets? They were cheap, and despite this, there would be time, during the journey, to spread out, to occasionally move to separate pairs of seats, to retreat into their own little worlds of writing text messages and preparing sets. Thank you very much. I was glad that it was the second guy he was talking to that turned out to be Scottish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Because <laughs> I, I thought he was doing a really terrible accent there. Um, and so, <laughs> so in terms of um, seeking advice from uh, critiquing groups, how did that help you at all in developing the novel? Not that specific novel, but I did work with 
uh, what in the end was four different people editing the book, okay. uh, which I've been writing for a long time. And I thought it was quite pertinent to this discussion because I created a series of editors graded by difficulty. So I had a friend of mine who is a very positive individual, but also very positive about my writing. So I would send it him and he would sort of say, oh, it's great and correct the spelling. <laughs> and then it went to the next person, my fr uh, another good friend of mine who was positive, but would give me very specific feedback. Uh, and then uh, it would go to a, a man who is incredibly harsh and critical of everything I do uh, and would basically tear it to pieces. So it was this idea of getting it to pass every gatekeeper. And then um, another um, Alan, who obviously uh, we know well, um, came in at the end as a kind of fourth editor with the kind of finished book. So it was literally once I'd got the assent from every individual person that I finally submitted the book they all, to a publisher. Were they all called Alan? Uh, no. It was like four levels of Alan. <laughs> Alan could do that. Uh, yeah, yeah, he could do that. He could in a, play a succession of roles. Yeah, yeah. Succession but yeah, I mean, it really has been very collaborative writing mm. process. And actually, it's really, I didn't, um, hadn't read properly what you were going to read. And in terms of the setting, because I wanted to go on and talk about the differences between London and Berlin. Um, and yeah, I suppose what I wanted to ask is, are there, when you move, obviously, you both know London, you knew London anyway before you moved back, relocate from Berlin. But this time around, were there any major differences that you noticed between the way that creatives share their ideas and develop? I feel like James should talk first yeah. because you, you came here much more recently. And well, I, did, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know at all. Uh, about just over two years now. Um, well, I mean, I, I, yeah, the contrast was really, really strong for me at the beginning. Uh, I found, um, yeah, I found it really tough. And I found, I, I found that I, I was in a comedy community in, in Berlin, which was very much a community, very, very collaborative. Uh, and you know, I enjoyed a certain amount of respect from my other com from my other comedians here, and so I was starting out from zero. But I mean, people moved to Berlin to be creative or mm -hmm. to live a a life where the financial issues aren't so great that they can develop their creativity. So I think I think there's a I think there's a, a lack a removing of some kind of pressure and competition from that. But at the other end of the scale, because the rewards are smaller. And because there's less success for people there, I think that removes some of the competitive element as well. So I think Berlin, in my experience, was very collaborative, and that's how we first met, wasn't it? We we're working together on a on a sketch for a, a comedy show, and that felt very easy. That kind of collaboration happening all the time. But I, I think I'm kind of curious about because maybe you, have you been more recently than me? Yeah, you must have done. Last time I was in Berlin was coming up to a year ago. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the thing because I for me one of the differences was it was just much when we were there before living there it was much easier to just get space like if you wanted to run a night you could kind of just mm -hmm. run a night and without without any profile to talk of there there are just so many spaces that you could just go in and say yeah I fancy running a cabaret night or I fancy running mm -hmm. a spoken word night or a comedy night and there's gonna be four or five performers I'm gonna try to sell I'm gonna try to sell um, tickets but this is what I'm doing and then the bar the bar would usually just go yeah great and n not even have a conversation about higher fees and then give you drinks tickets for you know five or six performers and then if it didn't even work 
it, it would it would be fine somehow. It's like as long as it were like some people, or as long as like you and your friends who are doing the night drank after you drank your drink tickets, mm-hmm. it was kind of okay. And I don't think that's I don't know. I guess the main thing is just it seems like there was more room. There was much more room to fail. And, and there was more space to just kind of try things out. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, um, I it seemed like there were less routes to then go from that underground and actually build relationships with major institutions. I mean, for me as a comedian, the biggest thing, there were, there were, there were a couple of things I really noticed. Lack of drinks tickets was one of the early ones. Uh, I think I've had about four f- f- free drinks in my entire time <laughs> in a year gigging, but I've really enjoyed them. <laughs> but the the just sheer lack of stage time for someone starting in London, and what that does is it develops your comedy in a very different way, because if you've got a five-minute set and you've got to kind of impress someone in the five minutes, well, to be honest, when I listen to clips of myself, which I don't do often of my sets in Germany, I'm normally talking bollocks for the first five minutes, just trying to get everyone to calm down and, and, and you know, put their drinks away. I mean, that is very hard for a young comedian who's starting out. Um, like, let's say they get their five-minute set and somebody walks through to the, to the bathroom in the middle of their set. That's their five minutes for the evening basically sabotaged, you know. So just by, by dint of that structure... Uh, you are restricting people's creativity in a way because if there's any comedian who wants to do anything really experimental within that five minutes, everyone's just going to think, well, they're rubbish. But on the but on the flip side, I think you also, I mean, I you know, playing devil's advocate, I think sometimes it's it's a bit too easy there, mm-hmm. but he, but it's a little bit too unforgiving <laughs> here. You know, should, they, they are yeah. quite opposite. And I was having this discussion today with someone regarding spoken word scene in that I spent a lot of time last year trying to develop sort of improvised stuff, but never had enough time because you get a commonly, you know, typically you get four or five minutes in an open mic slot. Mm. Um, and it would take about three and a half minutes for people to get their head around the fact that I hadn't just wandered in mm. off the street and sort of sure. just made, forced my way onto stage. So there, there is definitely, I've, I've, I would agree, that it does seem like a lack of time to develop things in London, whereas you're probably right. It maybe is too. You've got too too much of a free reign, perhaps, in Berlin to just keep doing what you want, and there's perhaps not enough of a focus. But since we, since uh, you mentioned or I mentioned spoken word, I wanted to. Since it's called the poetry podcast, we should talk about poetry in some way. I just wanted to ask: uh, Do you think that uh, poets and novelists are more guarded than other writers in terms of their work? Guarded in what sense? In, um, uh, less inclined to share early ideas. Oh, what do you think? I think that novels are very slow to write, and that um, I don't know why anyone. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of like test cricket or something. Mm. It's a long form in a in a in a kind of short form world. But I think what's novels are like along during the process mm. of writing them, they're generally in an awful state because you're trying to fix lots of different parts of this of this huge thing so for example i i sent the novel out when i was working on it to a friend and she just absolutely trashed it but that feedback was of no use because she there was a part of the novel which was just a few drafts further down the line and she said that's really good and that and the rest of it's rubbish Mm -hmm. well of course because but i can't give somebody that 
uh, and kind of preclude what I'm giving them with a kind of apology but for I think how the, it is. The reason I, I paired poets and novelists no, together yeah. there is because I think in most people's minds, it's the most solitary form of writing. Sure. Perhaps that people go and take themselves away and, and write in that oh, way. A novel, much more. So. I mean, I, yeah, I, I couldn't even imagine writing a novel, but I mean, like, I live with, with two novel writers and I think it definitely, you can wake up in the morning and like, turn out a poem like 10 minutes later. I mean, of course, there's there could be a revising process, but a novel is really something you're, you're, you are separating yourself almost from yourself in a way, or you're going deeper into yourself. Like, it's a very... I think what I was trying to get is that you feel when you're embarked on something about Lent that you've just got to get it done and kind of any energy which is detracting from mm. that process of getting it done, i.e. the, the question, um, you know, what is your novel about? If if the novel's not done, like you're kind of making a pitch for something which you don't even really know you're going to finish, mm. or you don't feel. I mean, I've always known that I would finish it because that's just how I am. But um, yeah, so I think that's where that guardedness but, with writing books. But so if you compare the novelist, for example, to someone that writes for the stage, playwright, they often you know you're writing quite long form, and but it's is it just a cultural thing that there is more workshopping involved? in that f form of writing? Because uh, um, it does seem that people that write in that way for stage are much more open about talking about their ideas in earlier stages of development. I was just wondering whether that's because that form of writing attracts those like more open person or whether it's just a cultural thing that, that, well, that already exists. Well, it's weird because I kind of feel like um, I've only ever known I've only known one screenwriter well enough to have any sense of what that's mm. like, but I feel like that that has much more in common with what I know of the way novel writers write novels. It seems like much more of a solitary thing. Theater is a bit different, though. I feel like there's more of a tradition of stage readings, for example, that happen fairly early on in the process, um, or having conversations between between the... Uh, with the actors and the and the playwright with how the text is actually functioning but I feel like screenwriting and novel writing is much more about someone putting themselves away and really needing a lot of solitary time to make it happen and we so Paula and I discussed uh, very quickly um, earlier last week about how this discussion today would would go and we touched on briefly um, we both have a background in visual arts and Paul, the performance art particularly, but for instance, we both know a lot of dancers, and the sharing of ideas is very common for the dancers. The sharing of ideas for performance art is, is really common. And how I was just wondering, it's open to, to both of you, but how much of that is a cultural thing and, and just born in the fact that you have to share rehearsal spaces, you know, and you're on top of each other anyway, so it's nat more natural to, to chat or whether. I don't know if it's about sharing rehearsal spaces. Cause yeah, I remember you saying something like that. Because I, I, I feel like, I don't know. I feel it has more to the, with performance art anyways, or live art. Um, uh, it's a genre that I think has much more of awareness of the fact that everything you're making is in relation to something else in a way. Um, and is, is, of course, people are interested in making something that is distinctive to their voice but I think there's there's less of an obsession of like I've made something that no one has ever made before it's like no I am different from anyone else and my take on whatever I'm making is going to be different for that reason well as I think poets 
it seems like there's much more conversation within poets, the poetry scene around, oh, I, you know, I, I had a piece about that or, you know, oh, right, I wanted to write about that, but now they've written about that. And it seems there's much more of a concern about ideas being stolen, yeah, that's I think. That's sort of what had a conversation went the other night as well. And so, James, how would you feel about the suggestion that poets are much more caught up on the idea of having something, uh, this idea of having an original piece? Whereas it seems for performance artists, because everything is in the context of something else, mm. you can be very open that you've not copied but reinterpreted. Uh, uh, well, nothing, no, nothing is original because we're now like several millennia into human history, so we've done everything. The only things we've got are certain like small technological innovations which are unique to our time, but I don't think they've changed anything essential. So uh, I think it's a bit of a red herring, to be honest. Mm. I mean, I can tell you comedians are well absolutely obsessed with joke theft. Um, and having discussions about detailed online discussions about who came up with whatever response. I mean, last week it was going around about Bowie and Rickman uh, both died at 69. Donald Trump is 69, so that was going around. But there was a huge argument going on who had thought about joke first. But then there was that Twitter thing too, right? Like recently there was this whole thing about uh, comedians talking about people stealing their jokes on Twitter and not mm. contributing. Did you read about that? I mean, I didn't read that specific thing, but it's a constant kind of discussion. Yeah. Because I was wondering whether that would be uh, a, a reason to put people off of coming to uh, discuss their ideas in early development. Because, yeah, definitely. because of this idea that people might steal an idea. Mm. You know, I think we're all in agreement that that original idea wouldn't, wasn't their original idea anyway, but if you were too attached to something. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it is, and what's also, like, if somebody, whether it's poetry or comedy or whatever form, if somebody has twigged that you are doing something which is similar to what something else, it, somebody else is doing, it's really important how you put that message across. If it's going to be in a friendly kind of way, like, have you seen this person, you might want to kind of look at this. But there's, what happens is there's a kind of relish like people appoint themselves as kind of the joke inspector and there's a real pleasure. I remember one time I, I used to do a bit and I came off stage and this and it, it was it was similar to a bit another comedian had, but I'd come up with it myself about five years earlier and I'd been doing it all that time and then I saw it much later. So I kind of felt well I can keep doing this thing. And also I'm working in a different country to the comedian who did it. Um, but he had come from London and had seen the other comedian doing his bit. And I remember just the relish in his eyes. He was literally waiting for me when I came off the stage to say, have you seen this comedian X? And it's like, I got you, you bastard. You think you can move to Germany and steal this stuff and do it over here? And I just said to him straight away, yeah, I've seen the bit, I know it, but I, I know you know full well that I wrote my joke and I've got more balls because I'm doing it to a load of Germans. Yeah. So, you know, but that is not the right way for these things to be policed. They shouldn't be policed. No. Unless someone is doing and, and And what you get is you kind of get ganging up on people who've got material which is similar to other people's material, and I don't think that's a very nice spectacle. Really. But the funny thing is, I have to admit, I don't really feel... Uh, when I, I mean, most people, everybody in the group, have either come or or said, oh, I really want to come, but they just can't kind of manage it because of time. But I haven't really ever had someone say, I'm not sure about that. The thing is, maybe they wouldn't say, I guess maybe they wouldn't say that. No one would say, I don't want to join an artist feedback group because I'm worried people are going to steal my ideas. But, but Gary did say exactly that, remember, to me, about my bit. 
What was that? The, the bit about, I have this bit about how horrible open mic comedians. Mm. And he was like, oh, someone's done a whole Edinburgh show about this. So, it goes. Yeah. Yeah, but that's not the same as I don't want to join an artist feedback group because I'm scared of people. Stealing. No, no, it's I not don't the same. Think that com- I, think it's, I think what's more common is I very often, because I'm a really big one for, for sharing art, open calls and artist opportunities and stuff. And often, I have a handful of friends who often will respond to, to some of them and say, oh, I don't know, I think this is just like BBC trying to like steal some ideas or something. And maybe that happens, and maybe I'm just like super naive, but I kind of don't buy that. Personally. Also, I think James is completely right. You know, we all experience the same culture, where some of us are more open to popular culture than others. But essentially the same news events happen around us and we're all exposed to the same media if you live in one country. Yeah. And it's natural to have the same ideas. Like that thing about Donald Trump, of course it's gonna of course yeah. everyone's gonna come up with that same idea. He's been on the front news of every mm. news, uh, front page of every newspaper for the last five months or something, you know, with his age, you know, and it's very common to have the age next to it, you know, to make that leap from these are two people that have died at sixty nine that we would rather not have died just yet mm. to who's the arsehole that we'd all wish would fuck off next you know and it's not that difficult to make that leap but um we're all taking we're all taking um we're all taking the same reference points so it's not unusual that some of the same conclusions are going to come do you find it do you find it unusual with that that will be said do you find it unusual with spoken word in particular that there isn't more general knowledge and that more work isn't put into the same context the but general knowledge of uh, sorry the, the history of what's uh, well the thing is it's like it's it's such a like a, a, a nebulous genre because like what I mean what like if you were literally saying spoken word I mean what is spoken it, like it, it can be everything from um, early lyrical poetry to and then it's like are we talking about it goes back to the Greeks are we talking about uh, early like African storytelling, which often has a kind of lyrical content, or is it relating to chance, or there will be, you know... Just one one point, there are a lot of spoken word poets that wouldn't even be able to make that point that you just made. You know, like, in what context are you going to put it in, you know? Because that shows quite a deep knowledge of what the, the art form is just by being able to wonder what context you should put it in. But yeah, but I mean, that's because there's not, there's like, there's next to no critical writing and like yeah, engagement yeah. with what it is and what it is in terms of what we call it now is pretty pretty young so and and even within that i think for most young poets spoken word is what they can find on youtube so even even people who are from the 90s are it's like who are who are they because they don't have a youtube presence mm-hmm. so i mean how can you then kind of reflect on itself and i think that's sort of the danger with with uh with cadence as well, because with this obsession of trying to figure out oh, well, what is a spoken word piece other than just someone talking or emceeing, or it could be comedy, or it could be song lyrics with a backing track, becomes like, well, we don't know what it is. Well, one way we can define it is say, we're all going to use these vocal rhythms, and that's what makes it spoken word, which I think is like really dangerous. Yeah. yeah. It could do with a little more, it could do, I think, the, I think what communities because i won't say there's a scene but what communities exist around with it could do with a little bit more critical reflection well this is this is my point is the whole reason i started the podcast was to have a to have a wider critical discussion about what was being made because it's not until you start that 
do you try and define what something might be? And it's not before, you can't put anything into context unless you define something, can you really? And then, so perhaps all of these things, and it's a fair point that maybe, if I'm talking about spoken word, fair enough, it may be as a popular art form too new to have been put into context in that way. But, but I mean, there's ways, you know, like, uh, um, there's, it's really annoying, I can't, there's literally only like three books on spoken word um, that are all American, nothing really has been written here yet. And I, it's so annoying, I can't remember one of them. But the, the, but the thing that really stuck me, with me from that book is uh, the woman who wrote it was talking about how the, the early um, Poetry Slam organizers, when Poetry Slam became like a national form in America, so it was happening all over the country, which is what national means, duh. But there was a sense that you had, you had the national slams to where everyone met each other and you'd have a team from all the different cities and that would be where you kind of had a sense of what was happening across the country. So there was that. But then in the, the point of the bat was that then when the organizers went back to their respective cities, they would have this kind of visionary approach to how they programmed the feature acts for the monthly events, which meant that, for example, if they felt, oh, it's getting like a little bit too um, like silly comedy, no message every single month, it's good, but we could we could do with a little bit more like grit and politics in it. They would go, okay, we're gonna we're gonna book these guys that we saw from New York because they had a really interesting message as a way to kind of show the people in their local scene, oh, right, this is what seems to be naturally happening where we live, but this is a way to open your eyes generally, and, and so on. Maybe people in New York would be like, oh, we're getting a little bit ranty, we could do with a bit of humor, so we're going to book that woman who won from Oakland. And I think, I think more of that could be happening, like a more sort of visionary approach to booking features, which isn't just about, oh, I've seen them and they're a name and they're good enough, but like, oh, actually, what... What does our local scene need? What are the kind of stories that are missing? What are the thematics that are missing? What are the tones that are definitely, missing? Um, I think there's definitely a void within spoken word which could be filled by some sort of curation of events. Is that, is that what you were sort of getting towards as well? Like well, I don't, want, of, I don't want to no, disrespect because no, 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 so many of my friends are organizers. I don't want to disrespect no, that. No, no, but, but I would put myself in that. You know, I, uh, along with um, uh, Lizzie, we ran a night for over a year and I'd put myself in that position. You know, there was a lot more we could have done in order to make sure the event was more diverse. And I mean more diverse in the types of acts that were on. Um, we had limitations in that we had no budget. You know, we could only put on people willing to come for free and on the nights that they were available. But I'm, I'm definitely in that category myself. I mean, I would have liked to have made more of an effort to... It's, it sounds arrogant to say that to expose our regular audience members with a different kind of poetry than they would normally see. But it shouldn't be arrogant. I think that's the point of putting an eye on. You but, know, then but then you also... I'm not, if, then, I'm if you're booking features, sorry, not if you're, if you're on an open mic, right, yeah. you can't do anything about it. Yeah, but then on a, on, a, on a business level, you also kind of have to then make your um, promoting uh, model also, you have to kind of build into it. Okay, well, if I'm going to build a night, for example, that relies on regularly having features from out of town, then it can't be an unpaid night. Then already I have to work into it. I'm going to build a night where I need to have a minimum of 50 quid, which, say if it's a London artist, is an okay fee. 
but if it's someone out of town, at least I can say, sorry, like, we can only really co cover your travel. It demands planning much further in advance because in order to get a ticket that's cheap enough where you can get, like, a return for that 50 quid as far as you can go, you're going to have to book it two or three months in advance. But it's all possible. It's just mm. you have to... It just takes a little bit more work, yeah. you know? So, uh... That's, end, that's end, all I can say on that. Yeah. I think we'll end on that note anyway because... Um... So we've spent enough time talking about that. So what? Uh, maybe we could just finish up with um, what you're both up to next, what you've got coming up, James. I've got very little coming up. Perfect. That's not true. No, it's it's well. I mean, you got, you got a great gig in February. That's true. I'm going Spain. Are you ready? Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm, I'm going to perform in the eighth country, which I've performed in t until now. You got a nickname and everything. Yeah, El Coño. <laughs> Uh, apparently that's what the headliner is known in, in as in Spanish, which apparently is the turd, uh, which I, I think is much better than headliner. Yeah, so I'll be do, I'll be in Madrid, and uh, I've got a hell of a lot of gigs coming up in February and March. So um, what are you doing on the thirteenth of February, James? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm making an appearance in an event called the Anti Slam, which uh, I, I very much enjoy. So. Uh, yeah. I'll, let, I'll let you say what it is because I feel like... The Anti-Slam anti is uh, an evening of bad poetry and uh, each poet has to con uh, compete to be the worst. Uh, I'm actually there in the capacity as a scorekeeper and uh, the Valentine's Day Anti-Slam is already... And is it that, a fixture. Is that at the Hackney Picture House? Yeah. yeah. It is, it's in the attic. Yeah, in the attic at the yeah. Hackney Picture House. And if people want to check out what dates you're going to be on? Do you have a website? Um, well, go to my Twitter best because yeah. I link up everything there. At James Harris now. Yeah, we'll put the link under the under yeah. the video. But um, do you have a blog? Uh, yeah, you yeah. can read my blog at dot org, and uh, yeah, so please do. And Paula, what's coming up? Uh, um, the next thing coming up, I got in trouble for not mentioning something recently, so I have to, I have to really think it through. What are the next things that are coming up? Next week, I will be in Exeter um, and on on looking up the Google Calendar what date it is on Monday the 25th if, if it, this podcast is up by then yeah mm -hmm. uh, I will be running a workshop in if the afternoon if not bad luck yeah <laughs> if you're in Exeter if you happen to be listening to this in Exeter um, but following on from that I have got I've also got the Anti Slam which I'm co-hosting I'll be in Manchester on the 9th of February for an event called Outspoken which is a queer uh, arts festival it's their spoken word night with Keith Jarrett and AJ McKenna and on March 11th will be the preview of Show Me the Money at Rich Mix uh, I'm Everything is Paula Varjak. I'm the only Paula Varjak on the internet. Because Paula, obviously Paula, Varjak is like Carjack with a V. And I have a blog where I'm writing lots of stuff about art and money. And it's show me the money, but the E in money is a three, like the kids do. Dot Tumblr.com. Thank you very much, both of you. Uh... Yeah, and you can follow us on silent underscore tongue on Twitter, and I'll be, I'll be retweeting and uh, all of that shit. <laughs> um, I'm so bored of that. Um, thank you, James. Thank you. And thank you, Paula. Thank you. Uh, good luck with the future and all that. <laughs> Bye.